Man, have you had a good time in church this morning? I have. Yeah. Today, we are going to continue in this Way of Jesus series. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, you, some of you have sat through this and you've heard it several times, but you know, some of you maybe haven't heard it at all, but we began looking about a year ago at the lifestyle patterns of Jesus. An easier way to say it might be, we often talk about what would Jesus do. These are things that Jesus did. And so these are the kind of some things that rose to the top of, of how he lived and how he moved. And, 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 and there, we found six, really. Uh, here they are. Jesus always put the kingdom first. You know, I don't know if you realize this. Jesus talked about the church like once, to my knowledge, like maybe one time, maybe, maybe just very rarely, if, if at all, but he talked about the kingdom constantly, constantly. He was always truthful. That is, he, he just, he was candid about people when he had any interaction. And then the more you start to read Jesus, you'll see his candid nature. Jesus practiced God's presence. He was constantly, you know, he, Jesus didn't have a morning prayer time. Jesus walked prayer. He, he, he was living it out all the time. It wasn't, and there's a lot to learn from that. It wasn't just one, one and done. It was a way of listening in constant communion with God. Today we're going to talk about to, what it means to engage my neighbor. Jesus told us to love those far from God. Jesus spent his life on finding a tribe, a calling, a people group that you move through life with and then, and then living free. We, we see that that Jesus lived free. He was somebody that he either healed people or he restored them spiritually, but he was always living in the freedom of the truth of who God was and who the Father was. And so those are the six. And today we're going to talk about what it means to engage my neighbor. And, and, and we're, we're just going to look at this as what does it mean to go to love the outsider, right? What does it mean to love the outsider, those on the outside? Jesus talked a whole lot about love. And if love, if love were a room, just like this room here, if love were a room, you see several windows into that room. Jesus gave us perhaps hundreds of windows into the room of what it looks like. You ever, you ever you've, you've done this a million times in your life, been on a window and you look in, you know, some dude had a, a really cool Mercedes Sprinter van the other day that looked, I don't know, it looked like it cost $7 million with all the shovels and uh, extra tires on it and, and tents, and, but I don't think it had ever seen a dirt road, but even still, um, you know, it looked really, it's like a Tonka truck, you know, and I realized as I was standing there looking at it, I was looking in the windows of it and I thought, you know, this thing may have one of those ring cameras or something like he may, he may be coming after me and I don't even know it but you know it, it, so you've looked in that's what we do when Jesus provides us these narratives where we can look in and see what does love really look like and so today we're going to talk about this because <coughs> here's the thing about uh, here's the thing about Jesus I'm out I've been doing this since like December <coughs> the uh, the thing about Jesus and and religious people is that religious people tended not to like Jesus much at all. In fact, it was religious people that killed him. Tried to. Qualifier. It was religious people that didn't like him at all. In fact, they couldn't stand him. People in the temple. But non-religious people ran to him. And I think we have a lot to learn about that. I think you and I could step back for a second and say, why is that? Why is that the case? And so today, 
we're going to talk about what it means to love the outsiders. If you've got a Bible, go to John 8. Uh, John chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find it kind of toward the two-thirds end of your Bible. Uh, if you are on a, a digital device, I, I, I use the New American Standard, NASB, and uh, we're going to look at this. This is a passage that I thought of many months ago, and Jesus has encountered a very, very famous passage. Um, a lot of controversy over this passage, you know, should it be in the manuscripts or should it not? And here's my take on that for those of you that really like to get down in the weeds of the Bible. I believe God is sovereign and it made it to the copy that I have and therefore I believe it should be in there. There you go. You know. It says, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and they sat down, and began, he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought, brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, having set her in the center of the court. What a hard day for her. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act, and now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Time out. I'm curious why they left out men. Just an outside perspective there. Takes two to do that, you know. When, what then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so they might have grounds to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. Now, if you ever do read much about Bible study, you will even try to find people from time to time to figure out what he wrote. I have no idea, but I would love to know what he wrote. Maybe he just wrote jerk uh, in, up there. I don't know. I, that, that's the Jason. That's, that's in Second Jason chapter 3, verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you will let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and he wrote on the ground again. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one. Beginning with the older ones, he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them, them's the Pharisees saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And so they were saying to him, where is your father? I love this answer. He says, you know neither me nor my father. And if you knew me, you would know my father also. Okay. So there, this is a tricky passage here. Because um, there's a lot happening right there. And so I want to 
talk to you about what it means to love outsiders. Because Jesus talked to us very clearly about loving people way different from us. I love what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. I put it on the screen for you, right? In Luke chapter 6, it says, if you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them, right? So Jesus talks a lot about what does it mean to love those on the outsiders. And this whole thing is addressed to Pharisees. Now, you got to know, let me set up some foundational frameworks because if you're in church today, I'm going to tell you, I want to help you out with something, okay? This is a really big deal. It's a super big deal, actually. If If you want to have a lens, right? Started wearing these things about a year and a half ago. I used to just wear them sometimes, and well, now I just gave in and admitted it, and, and now I wear them all the time. And so if these are lenses, what they do, and you know, you, you, they, they bring things into clarity, right? The reason I started wearing them is because I couldn't find a way to get my arms any longer uh, when I held things up, and so I needed something longer. I thought may as well get glasses. So what these do is they bring things that are blurry into focus, right? Very simple concept. Well, if you want to know... If you want to know the New Testament, you need to have a lens for who the Pharisees were. Because it's really hard to understand the New Testament unless you understand who the Pharisees were. Because I'll tell you something about the Pharisees. Jesus picked a fight with these guys every chance he got. Okay? I'm serious. I mean, you, you, we all look at Jesus in this, this painting of the long hair and, you know, he's like he's never had a, seen the sun his whole life, never been in the sun, or at least he used suntan lotion, SPF, a thousand. He was just very bleak, anemic, weak, you know, all this stuff. But if you read the New Testament for what it is, here's what you're going to see about Jesus, right? He had no tolerance for these people, None. Because of all, if you want to go into Matthew, and Matthew, he, there's a whole chapter of all the woes to the Pharisees. He called them. It would be the equivalent, okay? It would be the equivalent of me preaching a sermon and calling names, right? I do call names sometimes, but it's always just like stories. But imagine I started calling names for things that I knew you were doing, right? Some of y'all are going, whoa, is he, where is he going with this? Relax. But he said things in his sermons like, you need to be like this, but don't be like them. For they are broods of vipers, sons of hell, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. He said a lot about them in their presence. Jesus was not scared at all. And he said something in the Sermon on the Mount that I believe that is kind of the, you know how you hang your, your coat on a hook or you, as they say, you put your coat on a hanger. I think if you want to understand the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount, it, it, you have to, this is a hinge point, a, a, a turning point in the, the sermon. He says it in Matthew chapter 5, he says, he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness goes beyond, surpasses, outweighs, out, out sprints, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we need to press on the brakes right there. Slow down a minute and think about who these people were and why would he say that? Because he's saying it to you and me. Don't think he's saying this in some, you know, lifeless you know, copy of a text on a piece of paper written 2,000 years ago. When you read the words of Jesus, you read the words of Jesus. You do. 
This wasn't just written to them. It was written for us. And he says, unless you go beyond who these people are, then you got to know you're not going to make it. So I want to give you a mental image, okay? This is what, if I were going to put an image on the Pharisees, here's what I would make them look like, right? That's them, right there. That's who they are. Right out of the gate, none of us are wearing clothes like that today. Well, that's a good thing, right? I mean, that fuzzy hat must get really hot in July, even in England, Right? But, but that right there is, a, if you want to lock in a picture of the Pharisees, there you have it. Because what they were is they were the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers. They were the people that kept the cool kids club. They, they told you who got to get in and who, who, who didn't get to get in. Jesus said all kinds of things about them. One thing I found interesting that he said about them is he said, he said, you Tie up heavy burdens on people's back, but you will not yourself lift a finger to make it better. These were religious oppression. They they were the ones that they loved looking different than everybody. They loved walking different. They loved talking different. Jesus even said they loved dressing different so that when they walk into Walmart, you can spot them from a distance, right? Right? They loved the show, but what they were interested in doing, if let's just say metaphorically, and all illustrations break down at some point, but for this one, we're going to go with it. Let's say that behind those doors is all the things of God. Their job was keeping you out unless you conformed to all the rules and regulations. You see, the reason that Pharisees Loved the rules is because here's the thing, and, and don't, don't think we're beyond it, friends, because we do the same thing too. I think all of us, including me, have been guilty of it at times. We don't know how to separate the sheep from the goats. So let's just make a whole bunch of rules, and then we'll know, right? Some of you grew up in households where you were far more known for what you should be against than what you should be for. Right? We all knew where the lions were. Right? I loved how even when I was a kid, the kind of the feeling when I would go to church a few times, I was, look, I've always been hyper. I'm 50 now. I've embraced it. I've always, I've always been hyper. And I was, my hyper self walked right into a church. I didn't know you weren't supposed to be happy. And so, you know, I just sat there doing, you know, and then I would be like, okay, you know, let's get it on. And like, you know, my grandmother would be like, stop it. You know, be quiet, worship God. <laughs> then I read Isaiah one day. He wasn't quiet when he worshiped God, was he? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a rant. I need to stop. I, but... But these people were the type of people that shouted you down in the church, right? They were the gatekeepers. And I love what Jesus said. Look in verse 19 real quick. Look at what Jesus said to them. When they were said, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And he says in verse 19, 
you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, then you would know my father also. What he's saying is you don't know life. You don't know the life giver. All you know is the rules. So here's the deal. Here's why they killed him. You don't know, what, you don't know why they killed him? Here's why they killed him. Because they, they measured this is critical to you. I mean, it is wildly critical to you understanding the New Testament. Wildly critical to you understanding the New Testament. The reason they, uh, they killed him is because the only way you could get to God was to keep the rules. How else are we going to know what makes him happy? So they measured it by rule keeping. And Jesus said, okay, I'll tell you what. Here's the rule. I am the rule. I'm the rule. So when you take all the rules off the table and you replace it with a living, breathing relationship, they didn't know what to do with it. So they had to kill him. Because when you measure it with a relationship, now it, it goes both ways. You're in a love relationship. I've been married 25 years. You know, one, one thing we don't have, Michelle and I do not have a list of rules for behavior posted on the refrigerator. I just know when I break them, you know. But it's okay. You know, we're not leaving each other. Because you, know you know what I found? You know what, friends, this is what I found. In the absence of trust, there are more rules. And Jesus said, I am the rule. And they said, we don't know what to do with that, so we've got to kill you. That's why, the, that's why he picked, because they were holding people hostage. They were keeping people down. And so what it matters to us is that we understand what it really means to be a disciple, not a rule keeper. Religious people loved Jesus, and they, uh, irreligious people did, and they flocked to him. So I think one of the, before I move off this point, one thing I want to cover with you this morning is I think the reason this is this is just my observations from many years of reading the New Testament, is I think that one of the main reasons that the human heart could spot the Pharisees is because they could spot the hypocrisy behind it. I even think it might be demonstrated a little bit in this passage. They were going to stone a woman. What about the dude? About him. Because there's even connotations that Jesus was possibly saying, he who is without, without the stone, who, he who is without sin in this area. Because your law says, if you're without sin on this law, you cast the stone then. They couldn't. You see, they were people that dressed up right. They knew the, the biblical language. They knew how to act churchy, look churchy, and I will tell you, but that's not discipleship. Our discipleship stinks in the nostrils of God. If that discipleship doesn't make its way from our head to our heart, what does it matter if we can name all the apostles but we can't love like them? What does it matter if we can spell sanctification but we can't live it? What does it matter? They had all the game down, and they let nobody in. So here's a bigger question. So you got the framework now of this, because there's, there's a woman, 
there's a woman here, and there's a whole bunch of people, men, mad, wanting to kill her, and then there's Jesus. So there's this, this triangulation of a theophany going on. And so now what? what? What can Jesus teach us about loving? That's the bigger question, right? What can Jesus teach us about loving the outsider? It's a bigger question. I wrote it down for you because a lot of you are note takers, right? So write this down. What can Jesus teach us about loving the outsider? I think there, there's a couple of key points that he really can't teach us a lot. And the first one is this, that grace never overlooks the presence of sin. That's the first one. Write that down. Grace never overlooks the presence of sin. You know how I know that? Well, look at what he said to her. After they all clear away, he said, where are your accusers now in verse 10? And she said, well, they're not here. And he says, I don't condemn you. Go, move on with your life. From now on, sin no more. Stop. Stop. Stop it. From now on, sin no more. Grace doesn't turn a blind eye to the power and the presence and the potency of sin. It doesn't. And I want to tell you something, okay? From where I stand and where I look at modern Christianity, at least in the last 30 years across America, maybe even across the world, I believe we've allowed the demonic influences of this world to redefine what grace is. Because grace doesn't tolerate the things that Jesus had to go to the cross and die for. You understand that? God will never call you. Listen to me, Christian friend. Listen to me. God will never, ever, 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 ever call you to be tolerant of something that he had to go to the cross, spill his blood in order to redeem it. He will never call you to be tolerant of that. He won't. And Jesus didn't do it. He, he, he acknowledged the fact that, that, that this has to be confronted. But you know why he's confronting it? Because there's no redemption outside of the truth. You, you can't get healing. In fact, he goes on in chapter 8 on down. We won't get into that today. But he goes on in there, down in there to talk about the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so you can't find healing and redemption unless you find the truth. And that's why you hear me say all the time, repentance is your best friend. Since when has repentance become a bad word? Repentance is our best friend because if there's something inside of me that is, that is not lined up with the heart of God, I want to know what it is. And so Jesus doesn't tolerate it. He's not soft on it. He's not soft on sin. But he does offer the hope. He tells her to stop sinning. And then right after that, if you notice, when he tells her, he, he tells her, I mean, it, it, it looks like without even taking a breath, let's start in verse 11. He says, I do not condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at it. Look at it right there. Verse 12. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't, you won't have to walk in darkness, but you will have the light that leads to life. You, grace is something that sheds light on the problem. But what he did is he didn't abandon her in the process. He wasn't just stiff-arming her. He wasn't just saying, you're so bad. What would ever make you do that? You're so No, he said, walk in the light. 
Because you see, when you live in the light, when you live in the light, then all of a sudden the truth can come out. And I'm here to tell you, friend, I'm telling you right now, many of you have things buried down in your heart. You have things buried down in your past. You have things you're even doing right now, and you're wanting to keep them down and push down. And I'm telling you, it is bigger than you, and the devil's better than you, and he is way better at you than train wrecks of people. He's been making a living off of it for 2,000 years, and he is going to win. He is going to win unless you put it in the light. And when you put it in the light, then he can't lie to you anymore. And so Jesus brings her into the light, and she's standing in this big circle, and what he does is he calls her to a new standard, because that's what grace does. Grace says, hey, look, you know what? You don't have to live like this. There's a way better life for you. You don't have to keep doing this. But grace never overlooks. It, ne it, it never overlooks the presence of sin, but I will tell you what else we can learn from this story is while grace may never overlook the presence of sin, redemption always sees beyond the present reality, right? Redemption always sees beyond the present reality. All the Pharisees were wanting to do is stone that woman. They just stone her, kill her, because they had a legal right to do it they saw into that moment as what she had done. Redemption sees how it can be. Redemption sees all the way into the future, way beyond the present reality. Here's what Jesus saw in that woman. He saw worth. He saw worth. And I, I want to tell you, I can't imagine how she must have felt. Because it doesn't say, in case you didn't pick up on it, it doesn't say that they heard she was an adulteress. It doesn't say that somebody said that I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another, you've been messing around. <laughs> some of y'all get that. Made profits out of Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> that was on my feet, too. Um, no, they, they caught her in the act, drug her out of that bed, paraded her around like a monkey in a circus for all the world to see. So I don't know what your bad days have looked like, but I can't imagine a worse one. And I don't know what you've done, but I do know what Jesus did in that moment. And in that moment, he saw worth in that woman. He, he didn't just see damaged goods. They saw a tramp. He saw a treasure. They, they saw a mistress. He saw a misguided masterpiece. They saw an adulteress. He saw a future ambassador. You see, redemption always sees beyond the present reality. 
always sees beyond. When you look at the story, he sees beyond the present reality. And now, now all these people have gone. And have you noticed, like, he hasn't even spoken to her yet. He tells them to kill her, which she must have been like, whoa. And, 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 and now they've all gone away. And then Jesus turns to her. And he looks at her. And he sees that they intended for her to be the circus entertainment. And now nobody's in the circle but her and her Redeemer. And he says, I don't condemn you, but there's a new life for you. And I think what we can all learn from that is that every one of us, friends, every one of us, every one of you, every one of me, we all stood at the foot of the cross. All of us. All of us. And so the things that you point out that you don't like about people, the things that you point out that you can be critical of, just remember, Jesus had to die for your critical spirit just like he had to die for their sin. All of us stood at the foot of the cross. And what we can learn from this story is that the foot of the cross is level ground. Level ground. It is level ground. And at the ground, at the open tomb, well, that's ground that is waiting to be traveled. He is the light of life, and he has called us to love people outside the circle. I would say to you, friend, you can insert yourself into that story, whether you can identify with the act or not. You can, you can put yourself in that circle and realize the foot of the cross has level ground and the open tomb has ground waiting to be traveled and God has called us to love people and get them in that circle because we were once there too. You know, it means a lot to us that you would come here today and be a part of who we are. It, it really does matter to us more than you might realize. Sometimes I think we underestimate the power we have to influence people. You know, if you would look around your world, you'd be amazed at how many people would receive what you have to say to them. You could be a digital missionary. You don't have to post everything on Facebook, or we're not asking you to go on your favorite social platform, but I would challenge you to look around your world. I guarantee you might have a friend, even in a different state or another part of the world, Something was said today, whether a sermon, a prayer, a song, something was said that could mean a lot to them. Man, send it to them. And you'd be amazed at how much of a difference that could make.